Well, last time I spoke, we continued on the thing of the Jubilee and God's financial plan for Israel that's based on a seven-year and then seven times seven is 49 and a 50-year release. So smaller releases every seven years of debts and uh, then a total release of land and everything on the 50th year. I think it should be apparent uh, what the symbolism and the type is here. We know that the weekly Sabbath is a type of the millennial rest. Hebrews 4 goes through that very clearly and shows that to be the case. So every time we keep the weekly Sabbath, we are looking forward to the rest that the entire world will have after Christ returns. So it is a weekly reminder. And then we have the land Sabbath that comes uh, every seven years. It is also a time of release of debt. I think that it also very clearly pictures the millennial rest when Christ returns again. So he has many signs pointing to the time when the world will return to Edenic conditions. And over the years in the church, we tried to have sermons at the feast about the millennium and the conditions that would be in our children playing with animals and so on. I went into that a little bit on opening night because I think that it is good for us to project forward to that time. And certainly the Feast of Tabernacles pictures that in detail. We have our second tithe to enjoy food and rejoice with our families. We're free from the cares in that sense of this world for that period of time. And it is a time to truly rejoice before God for the good news that is about to come. It is so easy for us to focus on the terrible things happening in the world, and we indeed should be watching those things to see that the time is near. And I don't suppose it does you a lot of good to know that the time is near unless you're doing something to prepare for it. There are a lot of people in this world, in various religions and so on, who realize the time is near. Now, is that going to do them a lot of good? It will give them a lot of angst and anxiety in the meantime, but when it comes right down to it, they are not putting them in a position to be protected from it in any way. So the value in knowing the end is near is in preparation to get ourselves spiritually ready to meet our God and for our God, hopefully, to look upon us with enough pleasure that we could be accounted worthy to escape these things. How much do you think Paul understood that when he said there's a time to forget about marriage, to forget about having children? Christ himself even said that. Woe be to those who are with child or give suck in that day. The world sees it coming. We see it coming. Are we taking that into our consideration, or are we not? Something God says. Paul said there in 1 Corinthians 7, we should be concentrating on getting ready to meet our God, and that anything else becomes a distraction. We can use an awful lot of emotion and feeling and time and energy in those things, and yet, he says, 
that get in the way of our relationship with God if we're not very careful. He uses the analogy. He says, well, a woman thinks how to please her husband. And that's good. She's already married. Uh, but there's coming a time. I don't know when it will arrive or if it's already here or what. But it's certainly something we need to be taking into consideration. Our relationship truly is with our Father and with our Savior. That's what really counts in the long run. All I'm saying in that is we need to be very, very careful that we are not distracted by anything. And if something as important as marriage and children are to a family, or a couple of things that he says to consider, then anything else that is less important than that certainly should not get in our way. It's so easy in this world for things to get in our way. The Jubilee is a time, the pictures, when all the land of Israel that was promised to Abraham will be returned to Israel after having been taken away in these end times. Land is going to go away. I think Christ, and the type there, is that he would return at the time for the Jubilee to start. On the other hand, time may be cut short. He says it will be cut short, lest no flesh be saved alive. And I don't know how much impact that might have upon it, but certainly it would appear that there would be some. I'm going to pick up a couple of loose ends here, and uh, then we'll get into some things in addition that we did not cover the other day that I think are important to this issue, and then down to the timing of it. Let's go to Deuteronomy 26. I did not turn to this one, but it's a, it's a scripture that I think is important uh, in our attitude, in our understanding of the third and the sixth years of the seven-year cycle, which are the third tide years, or the poor tide years, if you prefer to call it that. Deuteronomy 26, verse 12. When you have made an end of tithing all the tithes of your increase the third year, which is the year of tithing, they call it specifically a year of tithing, you tithe every year, and we saw one there about the festival tithe where it said you do this year to year. Remember reading that one? It was clearly a year to year thing. So the third and the sixth, uh, and it mentions the reasons for it and where it goes, giving it to the Levite, the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow, that they may eat within your gates and be filled. So it is clearly talking of that when we read the scripture about uh, where you keep it within your gates. One you gave to the Levite, or God gave to the Levite once you gave it to God. Then you kept one uh, year by year to keep the feast. And then it mentioned one more that you gave to the Levite, the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow. So that was the year of, let's say, additional tithing. Uh, First and second, we do every year. So he delineates this year by saying the year of additional tithing, if you will, and what it is named for. But here's a, here's a beautiful thing, verse 13. Then you shall say before the eternal your God, I have brought away the hallowed things out of my house, and also have given them to the Levite, to the stranger, to the fatherless, and to the widow, according to all your commandments which you have commanded me, I have not transgressed your commandments, neither have I forgotten them. I've done what you said. 
I have not eaten thereof in my morning. In other words, I didn't reach into my third tithe fund when I was having hard times. I kept my hands out of it because you told me to set it aside. Now I have accomplished that. I have done it. Neither have I taken away anything thereof for any unclean use. I haven't dipped in it myself. I haven't used it for any wrong purpose, nor given anything thereof for the dead. But I have hearkened to the voice of the Eternal my God, and have done according to all that you have commanded me. So once we keep that specific year of tithing, the poor, poor tithe, then we can go to God and say, I've done what you said, Father. Look down from your holy habitation from heaven and bless your people Israel and the land which you have given us as you swore unto our fathers, a land that flows with milk and honey. So when we have accomplished what God told us to do, we can ask him to bless Israel. This has been read in times past to say you can ask for a personal blessing. But I don't see that in here. It says, ask for a blessing on Israel. You see, we are not just individuals. We are a body, as the New Testament points out. We are a temple with various parts, as the New Testament points out, and the old too, for that matter. And we pray for blessing on Israel, not just on ourselves. Even as the prayer that uh, Gordon tailored his prayer yesterday on is from Matthew 6 where we pray, our Father in heaven, not my Father. He is not just my possession, but he is our Father. So we pray, even when we're in individual prayers, we should keep in mind the entirety of the body, not just ourselves. I think that's an interesting concept, that God's viewpoint is always outward, not inward. So we can, after we do this, look for a blessing from God. Now let's review uh, Second Chron- Well, we didn't go to Second Chronicles. Remember Jeremiah 34? Uh, I won't go back to that one and, and go through the whole thing, but in Jeremiah 34, it talked about Israel going into captivity specifically because they were not keeping the land Sabbaths and Jubilee. You can go back and review that if you want, but we've already been there, so I won't go there. Uh, I will go briefly to Leviticus 26, Leviticus 26, verse 23. If you will not be reformed by by me, by these things, but will walk contrary to me, then will I also walk contrary to you, and will punish you yet seven times for your sins, and I will bring a sword upon you. Uh, and he's talking here about keeping these times. Uh, that shall avenge you the quarrel of my covenant, and when you are gathered together within your cities, I will send the pestilence among you, and you shall be delivered into the hand of the enemy. I, we, we read parts of this. Let's see, I'll take uh, verse 32. And I will bring the land into desolation, and your enemies which dwell therein shall be astonished at it. And I will scatter you among the heathen, and will draw a sword after you, and your land shall be desolate, and your cities waste. Then shall the land enjoy her Sabbath, as long as it lies desolate, and you be in your enemy's land. Even then 
shall the land rest and enjoy her Sabbaths. So it is tied together with the years of release and the land Sabbath. Now let's go to Second Chronicles 36. We did not go here before, but I wanted to be sure this one gets included. Second Chronicles 36. And here let's begin in verse 14. Moreover, all the chief of the priests and the people transgressed very much after all the abominations of the heathen. We might look at the church today and say we have a heathen society, a pagan society, a godless society, and all the people have been involved in it. We have been involved in it. We polluted the house of the eternal which he had hallowed in Jerusalem. So he has blown the house of God, the temple, the church apart. And the Lord God of their fathers sent to them by his messengers, rising up many times and sending because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. God, in his attitude, is for us, not against us. So he will send warning after warning after warning. And finally, he acts. Verse 16, But they mocked the messengers of God, and despised his words, and misused his prophets, until the wrath of the Eternal rose against his people, till there was no remedy or no healing, no answer for it. Therefore he brought upon them the king of the Chaldees, who slew their young men with the sword in the house of their sanctuary, and had no compassion upon young man, or maiden, old man, or him that stooped for age. He gave them all into his hand. Now that sounds like Ezekiel 5. It sounds like many other prophecies through Jeremiah and Isaiah, where here at the end time, God is going to do the same thing. He is going to turn the heathen loose on our land, America. North Korea just detonated or tested a nuclear bomb yesterday, I guess it was, or Sunday. At any rate, the world suddenly became a much more dangerous place. North Korea has sold, thus far, historically, every weapon they have ever developed to other nations. Do you think they will change their approach? This weapon that they have developed is far more valuable in terms of money than the other develop, uh, weapon they developed in the past. So you think, hey, here's a chance to make a lot of money. They've had sanctions against them. Their economy is in trouble. And I suspect that there are buyers there are probably buyers that have lots of oil money. I wonder who that would be. You know, does Iran even need to build a nuclear weapon? All they've got to do is buy it from one of their friends who are part of the, as Bush put it, axis of evil. The plot thickens rapidly. Verse 18, And all the vessels of the house of God, great and small, and the treasures of the house of the eternal, and the treasures of the king and of his princes, all these he brought to Babylon. What are the vessels of the house of God? They're us as individuals. Some honorable of silver and gold, some of clay or whatever, but we're all vessels in the temple of God. And we've all been in the captivity of Babylon for 70 years. They burned the house of God and broke down the wall of Jerusalem, 
burned all the palaces thereof with fire, and destroyed all the goodly vessels thereof. And them that escaped from the sword carried he away to Babylon, where they were servants to him and his sons until the reign of the kingdom of Persia. Why? Verse 21. Why? To fulfill the word of the eternal by the mouth of Jeremiah, until the land had enjoyed her Sabbaths. For as long as she lay desolate, she kept Sabbath to fulfill threescore and ten years. So for every land Sabbath, 490 years of them, that they had violated it, God let the land rest every year for 70 years. Seven times 70 would be 490 years. God was patient. He waited, and he waited, and he waited, and he said, my land will have its Sabbaths. And he's going to do the same thing to America, who has violated and not kept the land Sabbaths or the Jubilee, and it forced and worked the soil, ruined the soil. God is going to give it rest. He's going to clear us out of here and let it happen. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Now, there's another parallel with the Jubilee, which is a little happier. <laughs> uh, we're, we're about to go into captivity, and that's not a happy note. But I think that there is an obvious parallel to Pentecost with the Jubilee year. Remember, we count 50 to Pentecost from the wave sheep offering during the Days of Unleavened Bread. And what comes then on Pentecost 50 days later? That's the day Christ began the New Testament church, and it's the day that he sent his Holy Spirit to dwell in men, to be begotten of it for the first time. And what did that do? That gave us access to God by the Holy Spirit for the rest of our lives. And you count 50 to a time of freedom and release in terms of the Jubilee. So every 50 years, there is a release of all the land and all of that. Everybody gets a fresh start. And what did they get in life when the Holy Spirit came there in Acts 2? They got a fresh start. What, would it, what accompanied it? Great power, great manifestation of miracles, healings, whereby the apostles' shadow passing over people even healed them. God made it a very dramatic freedom from pain, from suffering, from blindness, from deafness, from disease, from all kinds of maladies that people had suffered, God made it possible that those be healed. And he gave tremendous examples of that kind of healing. What a beautiful thing. And it also introduced a liberty in Christ that we had never had before. But the sacrifice he had gone through so that our sins might be forgiven could mean something. The Passover and Days of Unleavened Bread showed that sin will be forgiven and that we have to continue to put it out of our lives. And that's done in the New Testament too, showing that if there's sin there, sin is what? It's the transgression of the law. So some kind of law still had to be in effect if we're to put sin, transgression of the law, out of our life. What law? We'll get into that perhaps a little later, but not today. So, 
Forgiveness is offered. We must continue to overcome sin and put it out of our lives. Then we receive the Comforter 50 days later, which makes it really possible and gives us help, comfort, strength, and as we shall see, liberty from a different law. Let's go for a moment to Galatians 3. Galatians 3. There is some kind of a law that Paul was discussing with the Galatians that had been there for a period of time. I'm just going to pick it up here and make a point in chapter 3 of Galatians, verse 16. Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. God had made a covenant with Abraham. He said not, or he says not, and to seeds as of many, but as of one, and to your seed, which is Christ. So this is made between Abraham and has to do with Christ. And this I say, that the covenant that was confirmed to the poor of God in Christ, the law, which was 430 years after, cannot disannul that it should make the promise of none effect. Whatever happened in Moses' day did not annul or do away with the promise made to Abraham. For if the inheritance be of the law, it is no more a promise, but God gave it to Abraham by promise. Wherefore then serves the law? It was added because of transgressions, till the seed should come to whom the promise was made, and it was ordained by angels in the hand of a mediator. So there was a law that was added. As I said, I'm not going to get into all of that today. I may tomorrow. We'll see. Verse 21, is the law then against the promises of God? It says, God forbid, for there had been a law given which could have given life, Truly righteousness should have been by the law, but it comes through Christ, not through the law. Verse 24, wherever the law, whichever one this is talking about, was our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. But after that faith has come, we are no longer under a schoolmaster. So whatever law he's talking about here was a tutor, a schoolmaster that brought us to Christ. For we are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Then he says there's no one who's a Jew or a Greek, bond or free, male or female. For you're all one in Christ. It doesn't matter our background, our race, our sex, or any of those things, because we're all one in Christ. Now that represents a freedom from some things of the past where race was a question, where whether you were circumcised physically was a question. A lot of things were questionable. They aren't anymore. He says in here in chapter 5, For brethren, verse 13, You have been called to liberty. Only use not liberty for an occasion to the flesh, but by love serve one another. Now we've been liberated from something. There was a law of bondage that was instituted. And once we come to Christ, that law is done away or is no longer in effect in the way that it was on a physical level. But there is another law that is still very much in effect, and he brings that into mind. He says, now you've been called to liberty. See, when that Holy Spirit was given, 
50 days after the wave sheep on Pentecost, we came under a law of liberty. And yet he says, for, the, for all the law is fulfilled in one word, even in this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. That is a reference to the Ten Commandments. Love God and love yourself. So the Ten Commandments are still there as summarized. So that is not what was done away. But we have a liberty and a freedom from sin and a forgiveness of sin that we never had before. We don't have to carry the burden of sin around on our back. We don't have to be woe be gone. We don't have to feel downtrodden. As we sin, we can ask forgiveness through our Savior, and His blood will wash away our sins so that we stand clean. Lamentations even prophesies that by saying we have a new day every morning. But we can look forward to a new day. We don't have to worry about what happened yesterday or 10 years ago or 40 years ago. We are clean each day through Christ to go out and begin our work day, our day, whatever we do that day, with a clean slate. Some people tend to carry their problems from the past with them, whatever they might have done. No, not under the law of liberty, not under the blood of Christ. Whatever you did yesterday is gone. Once it's washed away in his blood, it's removed as far as the east is from the west. And that's quite a way. never ends. They never meet. So see the liberty that comes there? doesn't mean that you don't keep your love toward God and your love toward neighbor as expressed in the Ten Commandments, but you're free from sin. You're free from the penalty of sin. And we are also, as he is trying to point out here, freed from some other things that were a law of bondage upon us. I don't have time for that in one day, so we won't go there. But, it, but this calling really goes all the way back to Abraham's seed. And you might say it's of Abraham's seed, not Moses' seed. What did the Jews look to? What did the Pharisees look to? To Moses. They didn't look to the covenant with Abraham. They always said, Moses, our father. That's where they went. Now Moses played an important part because of sin of the people and disbelief and lack of faith. But Abraham was the father of the faithful, and we walk by faith in Christ today. So the covenant with Abraham brought forward to our covenant with Christ is what really counts. That's what he's trying to explain here, even though it's sometimes hard to understand, as even Peter said. Now I want to go back for a little bit here to the book of Nehemiah. Ezra and Nehemiah were written right after the Babylonian captivity. They went back to Jerusalem when released. And there's a great deal in here that are lessons from us about what happened when they came out of that slavery in 70 years in Babylon. Now, I think that we all understand that Zechariah 2, 1 and 2 and 3 and 4, really, talk about 70 years of oppression that we have been in, that the church in one sense, was born in Babylon here in the end time, America being the leader of Babylon. And we suffered with it for 70 years. I do believe 
But at the end of 70 years, God began to give us a release by giving us a place we could go and begin to, to loosen ourselves from the tentacles of the world. Now, that did not happen in such a way that overnight we had no contact with the world, any concourse with the world, uh, and so that we were able immediately to get rid of every influence of the world. What it did was gave us opportunity. And if you read carefully through Ezra and Nehemiah, you will see that they had obstacles to overcome as they came out of Babylon. They had jobs that had to be accomplished. They had to rebuild the city. They had to rebuild the wall, repair all the breaches in it. They had to repair the gates and make a defense against anyone who would come and pull them away from God. Because the whole thing was you were taken into captivity because of your disobedience to God. And we in America have had a disobedient society really almost from its inception. There were true Christians, I believe, who struggled at the beginning in America when they came from England and other countries. But they were pretty well swallowed up, wiped out, and their influence was removed. So within that system, God started a church, and he let it labor within Babylon because it had a job to do, and that was make a calling to begin to call people out of that so that then... From that, he could begin to choose a few. And we have seen in many scriptures, starting in Haggai, Zechariah, and other places, that he will take a 10% remnant of that church, of those called out ones, and he will form a latter temple that will have a greater glory than the former temple. But those people have to be of good courage, they have to be strong, they have to work, they have a job to do. It is not an easy job. It was not an easy job to rebuild Jerusalem. There was a lot of hard work involved. It was even stopped for a while because of enemies and couldn't do anything. Then it was resumed. When it came time to build the walls in Nehemiah, Ezra basically deals with the city. And Nehemiah deals more with the walls. But what did they do? They tried to hold a spear or a sword in one hand and work on the wall, and that didn't do too well probably. So they had to assign people as guards to carry weapons to guard those who were using both hands to build the wall. So they didn't even stop except for food, maybe to bathe occasionally, but Nehemiah talks about how hard they worked at rebuilding the wall. Well, what do we have to do, brethren? What is our job? We have to build a holy temple, rebuild the city of Jerusalem, because Hebrews 12 calls us Jerusalem and Zion. We see the church scattered all over. Now, our job, then, is to rebuild that church, to rebuild that city. So that it is a righteous, holy city, not self-righteous, not sinful. Self-righteous is what Laodicea was and is. 
thinking you're fine when you're not. And that is why God says, cry aloud, spare not. Let my people know what is wrong with the city. Let them know where the buildings have been torn down, where the stones have been cast aside, so that they can be cleaned up, polished, and fitted back together the way they ought to be. Now, that is a job we have. Now, you and I are individual building blocks of that temple, so our first job, in that sense, is to get ourselves polished, cleaned up, and all the old mortar chipped off, so that we can be a proper building block for what God is starting to build here in the end time. He said he will, and I think we can be part of it if we get ourselves straightened out, cleaned up, the old mortar chipped off, properly polished, so that without noise of hammers or whatever, we will fit into what God is doing. With the first tabernacle, he had them do all the stonework and everything, for, yeah, for the first temple, I guess it was, somewhere else. And then those perfected pieces were brought together so there was no noise of hammers or anything as they placed them where they should be. I believe that God is working on individual blocks, wherever they may be, throughout the churches of God, around this world, and preparing them so that their attitudes will be of meekness and humility and of love, and that when they are brought together as a, from a scattered remnant to one place, they will fit together beautifully. Now, we haven't always had that experience in what we've done so far, have we? Uh, we haven't all been properly shaped before we came here. But God brought us here not to build a temple or put it together as yet. He brought us here, I believe, to prepare the way, to prepare a place, to get it ready. And he brought us here before we were all properly shaped. And we're still having to work on ourselves to get ourselves shaped right so that when he does pull his remnant together, we will be a part of it and we have to go through some growing pains. There may be some growing pains then. Even if everything is pretty well shaped, it still takes some work to put it in place, doesn't it? To fit it all together. That is work in itself, fitting it together even if the pieces are shaped about right. So there's, a, there's work required no matter what. But they had all kinds of problems they had to deal with. It talks about rebuilding the walls in chapter 6 of Nehemiah. And if you have a wall that has been breached, it has had holes knocked in it so that enemy troops can come in, you begin rebuilding the walls. Now, I take this as a spiritual analogy for us today. If we have been in Babylon, and Babylon has knocked holes in our spiritual condition, our spiritual city Zion, and maybe knocked pieces out of us as blocks, as individual pieces of the temple, then we have to repair those breaches. We have to reshape. We have to reform. You see, I'm not just screaming and hollering a lot about you got to change your music, you got to change your food, you got to change your clothes, you got to change... These are physical things, yes, but they reflect these things, the influence of Babylon. They reflect Satan. 
because Satan is the ruler of this world. And we coming out of it have been familiar with and enjoyed these things. Why do you think Israel had trouble obeying God when there were heathen around them who had pagan practices and things that were ungodly? Because those things were interesting. They were exciting. They were things they wanted to imbibe of. So even though these things may be physical, they are not of the culture of God. They're not of the way of God. And therefore, it is important that we change them from a spiritual standpoint, even though some of them are just physical things. But they are things that take us away from godliness. They tend toward a drug culture, a drunken culture, an immoral culture, and on and on it goes. When God expects us to be decent and modest and not drunk and not drugged and not into materiality, but into righteousness and holiness. We have to work. We have to make a living. All right, let's say we are here as a group to repair the holes in the wall. Now, you may have to work on the outside of the wall some. You may have to walk on, work on the inside of the wall to get all the blocks in and the mortar in the right place. Now, the wall is going to be built. God will see to it. He told Zerubbabel, you, your hands have started, have laid this foundation, your hands will finish it. So, God is going to make sure that the job is done. And he has chosen each and every one of us here to be a part of that, to help build back that which has been destroyed. And that which was not built right in the first place and worldwide and has to be scattered, knocked down, flattened, and rebuilt. So it is something that is going to be accomplished. Whether I'm there or you're there, God will see to it that it is done, okay? The point I'm leading to is this. When the wall is finished, that wall will be a wall that is built against the influence of Satan, the influence of the culture and society around us. On the inside of that wall will be godliness and holiness, right thinking, right actions, love between brothers and sisters, the right way, righteousness will dwell within because the glory of that latter temple and the Jerusalem, the city, the wall, will be much greater than of the former. But we were in the church and thought we were okay, and we weren't. So God expects something greater of us. He expects something better of us. He expects a greater degree of true righteousness from us. We cannot be, brethren, as individuals, what we were in worldwide 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago. We must rise to a higher standard, which is why I spent quite a few sermons talking about the standard of God. It is a standard which requires the captivity of every thought, the control of every action. It is a very high standard. And it has been set for us 
by our Savior himself, who never let a thought go astray, who never let a hand or a foot or an eye go astray. He kept them all under control at all times. What an incomprehensible thing that is to us who have not. But that's where he wants us headed. And when he says, to those that overcome, he's talking about that. He wants us growing, changing, and overcoming. There has to be holiness inside the wall, in the city, and in the temple itself. All analogies of us. We cannot be what we were. We have to become something different. We cannot remain as we are. We have to improve upon what we are. We have to get our focus right on God and not on other things. Seek ye first the kingdom of God, and other things will be added. As God sees fit and as we need. But the focus has to be on the kingdom of God. So our minds, our attention, our desires, our drives, our feelings... Have to be. Now, as I said, the wall will be built. The city will be built. The latter temple will be built. The only question, I guess, that really remains is when it is built. Not if, but when. We have been commissioned as a part of the building, called out to do it, given the information needed to accomplish it, which I think we're being given. Gordon prayed about some things yesterday in that prayer that I had prayed that very morning, myself, very early in the morning. I woke up troubled. And the things he had on his mind, I was pleased to learn, were the same things I had on my mind. What I had been praying about, and then he put it in words right here. I very much appreciated that and echo what he was saying very Seriously, because we need deliverance in those areas. We need change and growth and overcoming. We need God's blessing. We need to separate from this world. So when it is done, the question is whether you and I will be on the right side of the wall or not. You You start fixing a fence or building a wall or restoring a wall or whatever, There's a time when it goes up, and that wall is built as a defense against that which is around. That's why they had walled cities, to defend them from that which was around. Now, if you're on the outside of that wall, you will not be protected from that which is around, and you will be picked off. If you are within that wall, and the confines of holiness and God's standard for us, you will be protected. So the question remains then, where will I be and where will you be when the wall is finished and you can't get from one side to the other? You see, while the hole is still there, you can move back and forth as you build. But at some point, you have to be inside when it's finished or there's no way in. It's a defense against Satan and the world. Now, if we do not get rid of those things in this culture which are ungodly, Get them out of our character. Get them out of our lives. 
we're going to find ourselves on the wrong side of the wall. We'll be out there with the world. Do you know what's going to happen to this world? It's going to be destroyed. And only those within the wall will be protected. How you will be accounted worthy to escape or not will be based upon whether you are truly in the city of God or not, spiritually speaking. Now, we're not going to build a 40-foot rock wall around Anatol. In fact, Zechariah makes it very clear that Jerusalem in the end will be unwalled towns. It won't be physical walls. We must be building spiritual walls. God said at some point when it is needed, he will be a wall of fire around. He will be the wall. If you're on the inside, you better be holy. If you're on the outside, you won't be protected. And there will come a time when it's time to go to a place of safety and we will be accounted worthy based on whether we have separated ourselves from this world or whether it is still a part of us. If it's still a part of us, then we'll go down with it. If we have divorced ourselves from the world, then we'll be protected from it. I think there's a very, very important lesson here in Nehemiah. Let's go to Nehemiah 10, verse 28. Nehemiah 10, verse 28. And the rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the porters, the singers, the Nephilims, or Nephilims, excuse me, and all they that had separated themselves from the people of the lands under the law of God, their wives, their sons, and their daughters, everyone having knowledge and having understanding. So he puts the people, whoever they were, whether they were Levites, porters, singers, and all that they that had separated themselves from the people of the land. Are we separating ourselves spiritually from the people of this land? Do we listen to their music? Do we watch their entertainment? Do we eat their foods? Do we wear their clothes? Do we look and act like them? Do we fellowship with them? He says, he who will be a friend of the world or fellowship with the world is not a friend of God. Now, which do you want to be? Friend of the world or friend of God? You cannot have it both ways. Christ himself said, you can't serve God and money either. Are we after the materialistic things of the world? Money? If that's our goal and purpose in life, beyond basic necessities, then he says we can't serve God. You can't do both. You can only serve one master. So these people separated themselves, everyone having knowledge and having understanding. We're being given knowledge and understanding. The only question is, Will we separate ourselves, or will we continue to be like the world? They clave to their brethren, verse 29, their nobles, and entered into a curse and into an oath to walk in God's law, which was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and do all the commandments of the eternal our God and his judgments and his statutes, and that we would not give our daughters to the people of the land, 
wouldn't marry outside the church, wouldn't marry outside the tribe, nor take their daughters for our sons, wouldn't do that. God is against it. It's mentioned in the New Testament. 1 Corinthians 7. Not to become unequally yoked with an unbeliever. God says, don't do that. And if the people of the land were bring hardwares or clothing wear or whatever wear, or any foods on the Sabbath day to sell, that we would not bite of them on the Sabbath or on the holy day, and that we would leave the seventh year in the exaction of every debt. They covenanted to keep the year of release, the jubilee, that whole system, when they came out of Babylon. It even talks back here in chapter 13, I think it is. I don't guess I need to read it necessarily. But if they had married Gentile wives, they separated themselves from them. Because God had said, don't marry outside your race. Now, what does that have to do with us? Well, if we're married to this world in any way, we've got to divorce this world. We've got to separate ourselves from it. Our marriage is to our Savior, our soon-coming king and ruler. And his protagonist, his enemy, is Satan the devil. And if you're married to Satan's ways, Satan's system, in any way, you must divorce Satan. Divorce his culture. Divorce his ways. Now, God has not made it possible yet, at least insofar as I can understand, for us to totally get away from the world, even as those Israelites, as they were building the city, and working to accomplish that city building and wall restoration, they still had enemies within. They still had enemies without. They still had problems they had to deal with. So when they were released from Babylon, they were given opportunity, just as when we understood and began to separate ourselves and to build a town. There will be towns, not just one, but there will be some however many that means. That doesn't mean our problems are automatically solved and we could make a total separation from the world yet, even as they couldn't. They had to go through a building process. They had to go through accomplishing it, and it took time, just as it is taking time with us. But the more we get in line with God and His standard and His ways and His holiness the more and more we will continue to separate ourselves. And I do believe with all my heart that at some point in time, God will make it possible to separate completely from the world via a wall of fire, a canopy from the heat, the garden of God, a garden of Eden established in the desert, which he says in many scriptures will happen. It will come to pass, because that's what Scripture says. I would sure hate to be cut out of that, not to be part of it. So we may have to work in the world for a while, 
but we need to be divorcing ourselves from its ways. Not easy to do. You go to work, they tell dirty jokes. You go to work, they play the wrong kind of music. Sometimes they play it loudly. You go to town to buy things, and there is a vast array in the grocery store of things that are inedible, aren't good for your body. You go into a clothing store, and there's a vast array of things that are indecent, immodest, too tight, pagan, jewelry store. Wherever you go, whatever store you go in, there is little, very little there that is of a godly nature. And you have to select carefully. Not just, well, that's what they put out here. I guess I'll have some of it. Can't do that. We need to be thinking. We need to be separating and becoming godly in everything we do. You get on the Internet, boy, have you got choices there. <laughs> Probably more choices than anywhere else in society. The Internet is a spider's web, and I think it's described in Isaiah, of unclean things. We need to be very, very careful what we imbibe from that net, because it will destroy us. It will destroy our children if we let them have free reign on it. They'll go places they should not be given opportunity. But maybe they, too, can get the picture. They have eyes and ears. They are capable of seeing what's going on in the earth. And if there's a World War III about to break out, that this is getting to be a dangerous place, people fighting over religion, people fighting over oil, people fighting over dominance. And it's escalating to the point that you could set the Bible over here and never look in it again. And the population of this earth would destroy itself. It's just happening. And people in the world who have nothing to do with the Bible can see it. It's about to happen. He who has eyes to see and ears to hear, let him hear. Do you want to be raped? Do you want your stomach split apart with a sword? Do you want to be taken captivity, into captivity, and go to China or Germany or Uganda or somewhere as a slave and work 12 hours a day and get very little food or 16 hours a day until you get so weak you can't work and they just shoot you? That's what's coming. God wants us to build a spiritual wall that will not have any holes. He wants us to build a spiritual town that will be close to God. He wants us to divorce, to divorce ourselves from the wives of this world. And that's the analogy he uses in Ezekiel 16 and many other places. He called Israel a great whore who has prostituted herself to her enemies and he's even paid them to have an illicit relationship with her. What do we do? We run to China Mart. We run here. We run there. And we pay for ungodly things. 
ungodly CDs, ungodly clothes, ungodly foods. We're willing to pay for it. That's double whoredom. <laughs> they don't have to pay us. We pay them for things that pollute our minds. And in so doing, we're shutting ourselves out of the city of God. Isn't that a scary thing? We need to reinstitute everything we can, restore everything we can of godliness. It says that must be done at the end. It has to be done. I think the reinstitution of land Sabbaths and the Jubilee very, very important to our future liberty, to our future happiness, to our future inclusion in the kingdom of God. It has to be done. I know it's painful. I know it's not easy. And the world will come and try to take us back. Just as Egypt did Israel when they escaped. Where are you going to be? What side of the wall will you be on? Will you be included in the holy city of God? Ultimately, in the holy city as the bride of Christ when it comes down. But the cities we're to be building now as towns without walls are to be protected by God's Spirit, by His power, so that we exclude ourselves from the world and can be included when true liberty comes to this earth, the return of our Lord. This is serious. And we must take it seriously. You know? Nelson pounds and Gordon pounds and I pound and God indeed tells us to. But you know, after you get beat on the head after a while, I guess you can get used to it. <laughs> but this is serious business. We've got to do something about it. I want each and every one of you here to be included in God's blessings. And whatever the pain, whatever the cost, Whatever is necessary for us to separate ourselves from this world and be like God in heaven is going to be worth it. We're looking forward to a time with the Jubilee pictures where we'll have no pain, no sorrow, no tears, no frustrations, no problem. What an incredible carrot God dangles before us and says, come on, come on. Take a few more steps. You can do it. Those of you who have lived in agricultural areas know that sometimes with a cow or a goat or a horse or whatever, until they're really trained to the bucket with grain, you have to kind of give them a little bite. Come on, come on, come on. And then once they learn what's there, once they get a vision of what's in the bucket, they'll nearly run over you to get to it. It is without vision that people perish, Hosea tells us. We have to firmly understand that there's something worthwhile waiting ahead to make it worth changing things that we've done all our lives in a God, ungodly, sin-sick culture. Hard to convince us, isn't it? Hard to convince us. We've got to turn these things loose, but it has to be done. And if you don't turn them loose, God is simply going to take them all away. 
If you're not willing to give up the wrong foods, wrong dress, wrong clothes, wrong music, wrong entertainment, when this nation is destroyed, so will cable TV, so will grocery stores, so will everything go away. So you're going to lose it one way or another. Why not lose it willingly? Why cling to it to the last second and risk going down with it? Does that make any kind of sense? Now we have the weekly Sabbath to remind us that there is a time when bears and lions will lie down together. We have the year of release to realize that God will remove our debts, our sins, through Christ our Lord. We have Jubilee to remind us that all that will be taken away when this land is destroyed by our enemies will be restored at the return of Emmanuel. He'll give us our land back. He will change the attitudes of the people so that they will be appreciative of everything that Almighty God does. Because every good and perfect gift comes from above, not from beneath in Satan's world. Happiness truly cannot be achieved in this world. Not real happiness. You might have things, but I've known people who are very wealthy. And I've observed others who are very wealthy that I didn't know. And most of them have had very deep problems and unhappiness in their lives. Because of sins, because of things that were wrong, and things didn't make them happy. And they weren't happy. Why do movie stars overdose? They got millions of dollars. Most of them haven't had one happy marriage. And they've sure tried a lot of times. They haven't accomplished it yet. They don't know how. They won't live by God's laws. They cheat on each other. They misuse money. They do things that are wrong. And their marriages fall apart. You can't live ungodly in an ungodly world and achieve happiness no matter how much money and how many houses you have, how many private airplanes you might have, or whatever. Won't happen. A lot of rappers and rock stars wind up murdered or overdosing and killing themselves because their lives are miserable and unhappy and unfulfilled. Some of them turn to boys Some girls turn to girls for their pleasures. And every kind of perversion you can name. Because they aren't satisfied with the right things. And too much of the wrong thing leads to death and destruction and misery. So we've got to make some choices. Got to decide which way we're going to go. The eventual result. God offers us life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Our nation said we had that, but took it all away, and we don't have a happy society today. People smile and laugh and have parties and cut up, but inside, they're not happy. When you get right down to it. 
They can't stand to be alone. They can't stand quiet. They have to have the party going on in order to feel uplifted and halfway happy. They're not happy inside is their problem. Okay. Get away from that. Let's talk about when the Jubilee might be. I want to go back to Ezekiel. See, this has been a key factor with the church in all these years is, well, when is it? We don't know when it is, therefore we can't keep it. There's a benchmark in Ezekiel that might give us a clue. It says here in Ezekiel 40, verse 1, In the five and twentieth year of our captivity, in the beginning of the year, in the tenth day of the month, in the fourteenth year after that the city was smitten, in the selfsame day, the hand of the Eternal was upon me and brought me here. Oh, wait a minute. I, don't, I want to go to Ezekiel 1 first. I'm sorry. I knew that didn't sound right. Ezekiel 1, not 40, verse 1. Ezekiel 1, 1. Now, it came to pass in the 30th year, in the fourth month, in the fifth day of the month, as I was among the captives by the river of Kibar, that the heavens were opened, and I saw visions of God. In the fifth day of the month, which was the fifth year of King Jehoiakim's captivity. So, here he was in captivity. He saw visions of God. And it was in the fifth year of King Jehoiakim's captivity. But it mentions the 30th year. Now, what 30th year? There's been speculation about that in the commentaries, but one of the possibilities that some of them mention is that this could have been the 30th year in the Jubilee cycle as a possibility. Now, could that be the case? Let's go now to Ezekiel 40 and look at this. The 30th year there in Ezekiel 1.1 is the key. And when, when we get here, and that was the fifth year uh, of Jehoiakim. Now, here in chapter 40, in the five and twentieth year, twenty-fifth year of our captivity, in the beginning of the year, in the tenth day of the month, in the fourteenth year after that the city was smitten, in the selfsame day, the hand of the Eternal was upon me and brought me here. In the visions of God, brought, he brought me into the land of Israel and set me upon a very high mountain by which was as the frame of a city on the south. And it goes on to describe uh, the coming temple of God, a millennial temple that will be built. And this came 20 years after Ezekiel 1.1. So it would have been 30 plus 20, 50 years. And what was the vision? The vision was of the coming kingdom of God in the temple that would be there. Now, the Jubilee is equivalent to and a picture of that coming kingdom of God, when there will be true liberation and when the land will all be returned to the original owners and occupants. Now, it has been stated that the 30th year of Jeho or the fifth year of Jehoiakim's reign, which would have been the 30th year, as I mentioned, Ezekiel 1 1, was 594 BC. The historians have concluded that is the most probable date. 
Well, if you go to the 25th year of Jehoiakim in Ezekiel 40, which is 20 years later, a total of 50 years, and that comes to 574 B.C. So if the Jubilee was 574 B.C., and it makes sense that God would give a vision of the kingdom of God in the year that was the Jubilee. Okay? Count forward 50 years, 50 years, 50 years from 574 B.C. And interestingly, you come to 27 A.D. as the 50th year in a Jubilee cycle. Very interesting benchmark, isn't it? Now, why 27 and what difference does that make? Well, Christ began his ministry when he was about 30 years of age. And he preached for three and a half years. Now, we already saw in Luke 4 that he preached... Well, let me, let me review that. It's been a few days. What he preached here, he entered in the Sabbath day. It would not be surprising to me if that Sabbath were the Day of Atonement, the seventh month, tenth day, because the Jubilee was declared on atonement. And certainly what he declared here appears to be uh, a declaration of a Jubilee year. He read out of Isaiah 61, as we saw, and he had been anointed to preach the gospel, to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives, recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised, all the things that happen in a jubilee year and will happen when Christ returns and institutes the millennium. All these things will be done in a far greater way then than they are each 50 years. So he was looking forward and doing this, and he said to preach the acceptable year of the eternal. And he said that he was fulfilling, at that point, Isaiah 61, which says the same thing, but Isaiah 61 goes on to talk about the vengeance of the Lord, the returning of beauty for ashes for his people, and so on. Uh, so he stopped short of saying he was coming to declare the vengeance of the Lord. He was only coming as far as declaring the acceptable day of the Lord, or year of the Lord, excuse me, not day, but year. And he would his return is pictured by Jubilee and the kingdom of God. So that symbolism fits with Ezekiel 1.1 and Ezekiel 40 with a vision of God coming at that time. Now, if he began his ministry in 26 AD, it's very possible that he made this proclamation in Luke 4 at atonement, which is in the fall of the year, of 26. In that case, the Jubilee year would have begun, would have begun Abib 1, in the spring of A.D. 27, matching perfectly the benchmark that Ezekiel seems to be establishing. So 27 A.D. then is very likely to be, have been a Jubilee year. Some people have argued, well, you should keep the Jubilee from atonement to atonement. Well, that doesn't fit Leviticus 25 where it says, you keep 49 years, 7 times 7, and the 50th year is the Jubilee. Now, God makes it very clear that we count the year from the time they came out of Egypt, which was in the spring, in Abib. So you can't count 49 years, Abib to Abib, and then suddenly have 
a year, the Jubilee year, starting halfway through the year in atonement. What do you do with a half year left over? And then if you end it again in atonement, you're still six months from Abib. It doesn't make any sense at all to begin atonement, I mean for atonement, to begin the Jubilee. It was on a yearly cycle through 49 years, and then the 50th year, and years don't begin at trumpets, years don't begin at atonement, years don't begin at feast tabernacles, years begin Abib 1. God made that very clear. So I see, don't see any way that that could be an argument. It also has something to do with the counting of Pentecost and the counting of the Jubilee, because there was an argument in the church for years that, well, you... You actually have 49 days, and you know, inclusive or exclusive counting. So we didn't know whether it was Sunday or Monday. You count 50 and then keep it, was the way Mr. Armstrong looked at it for years. Well, the Jubilee makes it very clear. The 50th year is the Jubilee, as Leviticus 25 clearly states. So the 50th day is Pentecost. So it has to be a Sunday, not a Monday. Now, if A.D. 27 was a jubilee year, and Christ was announcing that, as it appears he was, count forward. What do you come up with? I had a sheet here that I wrote that all out on what to do with it. I guess it really doesn't matter. Uh, if you count forward in 50s, you can write them all out if you want to, uh, you'll come to 1977 as a jubilee year. We should have kept it, but we didn't. Then if you start counting sevens after that, you'll come down to 2027 as a jubilee year. 1977 to 2027 is 50 years. <clears throat> and that year then would picture release and the kingdom of God on earth If obvious question comes up, man, do we have to wait till 2027 for the kingdom of God? First question came to my mind and yours both. I don't think so. Uh, he does have several variables. He says that if time was not cut short, there would no flesh be saved alive. How short is he going to cut it? I don't know. On the other hand, I could see people, you know, the Protestants saying Christ could come back any day now. And they have their secret rupture. Uh, it's a secret rapture. It's a clandestine hernia. I'm sorry. Any day. No, there are a lot of events that have to happen. We've got to have at least three and a half years of tribulation. I think we have to have some years of villages or towns without walls, as per Zechariah 2. Uh, what's the point in establishing villages and much men and cattle there if it's only for two months or six months or a year? In other words, God wants a culture that is a godly culture, agriculturally based, with his people at the end time, and the context there is of the time of the rebuilding of the temple and the two witnesses. 
Therefore, it has to go on for a period of time, as I see it, for it to be an example to the world, which is getting away from that. And I think that having the land Sabbath and the year of release and the Jubilee is part of what we have determined to do then helps reintroduce that agricultural society that God intends. And it may need to continue for a while. Now, to add to that, the church is getting old. And it says that this generation will not pass until these things are accomplished. He makes it very clear in the book of Haggai that there will be old men who will have seen the latter temple at its greatest glory and will also observe, I mean the former temple, and also observe the latter temple at its greatest glory and compare the glory of the two and that the latter will outshine the former. So you have to take, as I see it, the best spiritual condition of worldwide before it was destroyed. And in my assessment, that would be in the 50s and 60s. I think people had more faith and were walking by faith more in that time, and I think that it degenerated after that in you and in me and all of us from that level. So it would appear to me, I mean, you, you certainly can't say that the, the spiritual condition of worldwide was at its best in the 70s or the 80s, 90s. I don't think so. What little spiritual power it had came in the 50s and 60s. There were more healings per capita, if you will. There were more blessings given for keeping third tithe year per capita, if you will, than there was at any time, at least in what I observed and saw in the history of worldwide. But that doesn't mean now that I'm saying that some people who were called in the 60s or 70s were worse people and weren't Christian. I'm not trying to make a comparison here of individuals, please. But I think that the overall strength of the church was greater back then. I think Mr. Armstrong's strength was greater back then. And then we had all kinds of people come in who did not get entirely converted, and some of them even became evangelists, and they blew it away. So in my particular assessment, that is what I would say would be the 50s into the mid-60s. And after that, it began to deteriorate somewhat. And it got worse and worse, like a snowball headed for hell. I think that's an apt analogy. So there have to be people, as I see it, who saw the church in the 50s and 60s and can compare it with what God is about to build. And it's not yet built here at the end when he brings his remnant together. So there must be a certain amount of time left between now and the time he begins to gather the remnant, and I don't think that's far off. But then we have to have not a village or town, but towns without walls, with an agricultural base, much men and cattle, and that has to then be compared to worldwide at its best. So there's a period of time here. But he also, and he says there in Zechariah End of two, I think it is. Might be, yeah, end of two. But in that day, each man will have his own vine and fig tree. So God is going to restore Edenic conditions 
in those towns, in those villages that he is going to establish with his remnant. And probably that needs to be there for a few years, might be three and a half, might be a different number. But at the same time, he promises healing and that we will have feet as hinds feet or we'll be able to walk like deer. I believe that those scriptures about the blind and the deaf and all those things being restored will come in that latter temple just as they did in Acts 2 to the original church. God's spirit, his power will be restored. He says, I will give power to my witnesses and that the men who are with Joshua there in Zechariah 3 will be men of signs and wonders. So that is coming. It will happen to the church in this age. So, so, so what if we're getting old and decrepit? God says he'll heal us. God says he'll restore us. So if it does have to go on for X number of years, whether it's three and a half or ten, what difference will it make if we've been restored to health? Now Moses was, what, 120 years old? He had his sight. He had his hearing. His natural force had not gone away as a man. God can restore. God can heal. God can fix. So, if we have to wait till 2027 or near there, God will change the conditions. So, he may cut it considerably short of that, or if it is that long, he is going to make it so that this generation will not pass away until it happens. So, we win either way, don't we? I don't have a problem with that. All right, then. If 2027 is a jubilee, go back to 1977 as the one in the past, and you start counting forward seven years, another seven years, another seven years, and you come to 2006. I wrote this all out. I guess I left that paper back in my briefcase. It doesn't matter. If you bring that forward from 1977, 2006... Uh, well, I, I don't really need it. Marla found it there. On the, uh, 2006 is the first year of the seven-year, the next seven-year cycle. So we get to come in on the ground floor of the beginning of the time. Now, since this is the first year of the cycle, we're not looking at third tithe for first year, second year, the third year. That would be 2008, wouldn't it? Uh, in the spring of 2008. So we have some time to study this some more to be sure that that is correct because I don't want us to get into a a third tithe cycle and then have to change it again. Uh, It would be optimal for us all to get on the same cycle based on this being the first year, 2006, ending this spring, ABIB 1. Second year then will begin ABIB 1, 14 days before Passover, and continue for a year. Now, in some ways, this could penalize some of you who uh, have a third tithe year somewhere in there, or it could give some of you an extra year, you know. But you got to make some adjustments somehow if we're all going to get on the same cycle. And we're going to get a, uh, a year of release established, third and sixth year, third tithe, 
and then the land or, or the uh, land Sabbath on the seventh year. So we have time to prepare. We have time to adjust ourselves. If indeed uh, 1977 was a jubilee year, and 2006 is the first year of the next seven-year cycle, perhaps God uh, began to reveal this to us at this time because we do have almost the whole time ahead of us. We're half a year into the first year of the next cycle. It should have started in the spring. And uh, we got a time to work with our finances, time to adjust things, and then we would all begin to keep third tithe year, ABIB 1, 2008. We would go through and keep the land release at the, the seventh year. And we're all on the same schedule, we're all doing it together, and God could bless us as a group. You read Malachi 3, and it seems like a church thing, a group thing there, not just an individual thing of, if I tithe properly, God will bless me. But it seems that His people are involved there. The ministry is involved there very clearly at Malachi. But the ministry has to get things right. And those people who get it right, God says He will bless. He says, I'm going to curse those who do not, and I will bless those who do. And he's talking about the widow, the orphan, the stranger, and so on when he talks about tithes there. So to me, it is clearly the seven-year cycle of third tithe and release that he's speaking of in Malachi 3, and it has to do with the church today as an end-time prophecy when Christ comes suddenly to his temple. So him coming suddenly to his temple has to do with him being pleased with that temple. And he goes on to explain that it's one of the primary things he has in mind is our tithes and our offerings done properly. And we have never done that in the way prescribed in the Old Testament to date in this age. So perhaps it is time we were instituted that and covenanted with God to do it And then Jeremiah 34 says very clearly that if we covenant to do it and then don't do it, we will be cursed and go into captivity. So we better not set our hand to do something that we're not ready to do. So I'm not going to say right here this is something we have to do or that you have to do. I'm presenting it to you as a possibility of something that should be done. And I am convinced that I intend to do it because I think I've seen enough evidence in Scripture that it ought to be done. But I'm not asking you today to say, okay, I'm going to do this too. I want you to perhaps review these Scriptures if you're not convinced at this time. Uh, Go through them all. See how they fit. And if you don't think that that's right, and you can see some reason why it should not be. We'll leave the door open for the time being for feedback to see if it's something that ought to be. At this point, I'm pretty much convinced. Yet on the other hand, I've been pretty much convinced on Passover being not a day of unleavened bread in the past, and I changed. And I was pretty convinced the Hebrew calendar must have come from God whispering in Moses' ear at one time, too. But I changed. And I've been convinced that Jesus was the right name 
But I'm convinced at this point that Emmanuel is a, an alternative name that God has given us for a time when there's going to be a false prophet who calls himself Jesus. And we need to know and be able to tell the difference. So there's a lot of things we've changed, a lot of things we've learned. Maybe this is another thing we've learned, and it seems to me, after going through these scriptures, it's fairly obvious, but uh, and it's something that ought to be changed, ought to be adhered to. But if you can show me somehow that it shouldn't be, we'll consider that before we make this ironclad. It's something we should go into together. Uh, it isn't our father, and my father in heaven, it's our father in heaven. And we need to be together as much as we possibly can be on these things. So give it some thought, give it some prayer, give it some study. And uh, I'm not totally convinced on uh, AD 27, but it seems to fit the benchmark in Ezekiel, and then it certainly seems to fit what Christ proclaimed there in Luke 4, as a quote from Isaiah 61, and would seem to be the most logical. Well, now, what if it turns out that we have, should we wait until we are absolutely positive, positively sure that's the year? No, I don't think so. That's been our hesitancy before. All you can do is do the best you can with the knowledge you have. If you move forward on the knowledge God gives you, whether it be Sabbath, Holy Days, who Israel is, or whatever, just like when we first came in, Mr. Armstrong could have rejected the Sabbath, that would have been the end of the deal, and God would have used someone else. But he accepted the weekly Sabbath, God opened something else. He accepted that, God opened something else. And that was the process. I think we're in that same situation today. If God opens something, we do it. If we do it, he opens something else. If we do that, he opens something else. We can only act on the best knowledge we have. The best knowledge I have at this moment is that A.D. 27 was a jubilee, and therefore 77 was, and that this is the first year then of a seven-year cycle. And that is the best knowledge we have to operate upon. Now, if in the next month or six months or year or two or whatever, we find that there is a better answer to that, we will adjust our thinking accordingly. But in the meantime, this is the best information we have to date. If we act on it, maybe it's correct. If it's wrong, we'll adjust it, however painful it might be at the time. You simply have to march forward in faith with what knowledge you have. You can't sit on your behind and wait till you have all knowledge before you do anything. How many of us would have ever been converted and come into the church if we just sat on one or two or three doctrines and waited until we knew everything? If you wait to prepare for the kingdom of God until the kingdom of God comes because you're afraid you don't have all knowledge, you could be in deep trouble and I have on wedding garments when your bridegroom returns. So I think from that standpoint, we have to act on what we understand and then ask God to give us better understanding and more understanding in everything as we move forward. So that's my position on it at this point. And uh, if you can show or feel that that's not correct and can show us a better answer, then let's have it. If not... I think that we should go forward with this 
we don't have to, in that sense, do anything until the spring of 2008. So that gives time to, if there's a better answer, come up with it. And yet still, we could have made, set our will and our mind and our purpose to do it in this first year and make an agreement with God and covenant with Him. We are going to reinstitute the seven-year land Sabbath and release. We're going to reinstitute the Jubilee. And that is our purpose and our will. We will not go back on it. But if we see that we don't have the right year, we'll fix it. That seems to be the most logical way to proceed unless you come up with a better answer than that.